You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect us to a voyage of exploration and discovery? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, a conversation with Tom Chafin, author of Odyssey, Young Charles Darwin, The Beagle, and The Voyage That Changed the World. After the break, singer-songwriter Nico Patton stops by. Before Tom joins the conversation, I always think about, before I start another episode of a podcast, the great, late and great Pete Hamill. And Pete always said, I write what I want to read, and I write what I know about. But he was a unicorn because he knew a lot of things about a lot of, of the issues of the world. So I don't think I'm in any way like him. I do this podcast as a conduit and a vessel to things I know nothing about. Hopefully I'm educating myself as well as anybody that joins us on the podcast. And that's my ultimate aim. Teach me something. I want to walk away saying, I did not know that. Perfect example of that is Tom Chafin has joined the conversation about his new book called The Odyssey. This is a quote. Reading like a spectacular novel, drawing on Darwin's journals and unpublished sources, Forbes said, novelistic nonfiction at its best. And Tom, welcome to the podcast. Larry Davidson here. Well, thank you, Larry. It's good to be with you. So in a sense, based on what I, in terms of looking into your background, I think you believe in exploring things you don't know about to educate us. Is that accurate? Exactly. You know, there's a writer's adage, write about what you know. And I think there's the case to be made for that adage, but mine is diametrically opposite. I, I like to plunge into things I, I don't know, subjects, and just immerse myself. So I, thinking of the painting by Raphael called The Portrait of a Young Man, to what, I don't think you're a painter unless I missed something in your bio. No, no, not. Okay. But to what degree this, your book is a portrait of another young man, Darwin? It is. I had uh, written about a similar figure uh, um, in my second book. This was my eighth book. Right. My second book was a biography of John Fremont, or of the American West, traveled all during this, since, like a decade later than Darwin. I was reading a, a biography of Alexander von Humboldt, and that I was between projects, and that reading that book reminded me. Of just I, somehow, I got the idea of, of doing the book, this book on Darwin's explorations. As I say in the introduction, that our idea, our image of Darwin, tends to be, I say, an Old Testament prophet figure. And um, younger years, when he was in very good health and, and robust, and had a kind of spirit of wanderlust. It's dealt with in biographies, but in, in cradle to grave biographies, but there hasn't really been much of a focus on it. So I've just decided to take on this, this book. What I think writers do that fascinates me is they shape a story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction or somehow a marriage of both. So I'm going to ask a two-part question. As, sure. a, as a writer, going back to your early age, what has shaped you? And the early Darwin, what has shaped him? I think I identify with the, the wanderlust. I mean, I've, I've traveled around and, and lived in a lot of different places. But I'm, I'm not a, I should say, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, I'm not a uh, I don't present myself as even a scholar of, of Darwin. 
Actually, I think in some some ways this is like the English majors, Darwin. I think what drew me to what really sort of closed the deal for me on, on doing this book was I, I discovered he was a much more he had much more diverse interests than the stereotype of the the scientists. I think I, if you've read the book, he I, I talk about how he late, late in life in his autobiography he was talking about the qualities that allowed him to had allowed his scientific achievements, his, his powers of observation and, organ, and intellectually organizing. He said that those attainments had come at a price. He had lost, he said, by the age of 30, I, I had lost the appreciation of music and art and other similar activity, activity appreciations that he had as a, as, a young, as a young man. So let me ask this question because you, anybody that picks up this book they will realize you've done extensive research on your part to, to shape the book, as I said before. You've got access to journals, letters, and, and the books that he wrote. How much of that do you have to look at through a bigger prism or a bigger lens so they don't come across as, I don't want to say self-serving, but sometimes what I learn from memoir writers is what they write about is their interpretation of a situation, which may vary greatly for other people's interpretation coming on the same time frame. So how did you handle it? How did you wrestle with that? Well, I started by reading uh, Darwin's key books. I'd read those in, or I'd read Origin of Species in graduate school. Right. Uh, and I, I actually bought a copy, of a pink, pink one edition of Voyage of the Beagle, you know, graduate school decades ago, but I had actually never read it, but I, I finally read that. Then I read uh, Janet Brown's two-volume biography of, of Darwin and some other biographies and related materials. And, um, well, and then I started just digging around and, and, and reading his letters, which are all online. Uh, Cambridge University has a fine website that um, they have all, all of his personal papers. And then there's another site at, at the University of Singapore called Darwin Online that uh, has all of his publications. I wasn't able to, I mean, I'd been planning a trip to South America. Just, I like to, uh, just, you can't, I couldn't retrace in, you know, a few weeks what travels he did. It took five years to do. What, I, what I'm trying to, to figure out is the ability to travel, and I think about a PBS masterpiece did a great series about Around the World in 80 Days, which was superior to the, the TV movie, which is to, uh, the regular movie, which is totally different. Were you thinking about, and you just mentioned your own travels, were you thinking about what it means to have adventures all over the world and then record them and put them out there for posterity? Do you mean uh, uh, Darwin doing that? or, or Well, me? I'm thinking about you too, but I, it, it okay. makes me think about Darwin and all these adventures that you record in his book as a young man. They're fascinating. Well, th thank you. I'm, I'm glad that uh, I was able to convey that to you. You know, there, among biographers and historians, there are different schools of thought on the value of visiting places that are going to be depicted in, in the narrative. I think those visits are worthwhile. You can go to extremes. I've, I've known of cases where a writer gets so obsessed with visiting every place, and they, they and at a certain point, they lose the impetus for do the, doing the book. If it's a story that that's uh, sort of takes place out on a broad geographical stage, I know biographers and historians who who say that uh, you know there's absolutely no value. You, you know that's 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 the value of written records. I found that increase when I first 
got into this racket, I would often visit libraries and archives. But I found generally most of the, a lot of those, or most of them, those papers are, are online now. Right. In the, in the case of high-profile figures like Darwin or Jefferson or Lafayette, my last book. And the other thing is I, I learned just from experience that, you know, the, the, the curators at these archives, they know the materials better than you're going to ever get to know them. So I know there's some archives that I, or papers that I need to see that are not online. I, I just communicate with the archivists and, and have a conversation and, and you know, they'll arrange to have printed copies or, or the copies scanned and emailed to me. The value I, I still have in, I see in, in travel, um, and I, again, I didn't, I wasn't able to do it for this book, is uh, I think sometimes going to these places, it, it just, it's kind of inspiring or it gives you a, or more concretely, it gives you a, a sense of the scale of places. But, you know, you, you can't retrieve the past. I mean, you, it, it, it's the, the written documents are always going to be more important. So let's kind of just break down the title once again as an overview. Yeah. The book is called The Odyssey. My guest is Mr. Chafin, Tom Chafin. And the subtitle is Young Charles Darwin, The Beagle and the Voyage That Changed the World. So let's go piece by piece by piece because it fascinates me. Give sure. us some more insight into the young Charles Darwin before he turned 30 and felt like there was nothing left in his life. He lost interest in a lot of things. He's one of the intellectual giants of the world. Einstein, I can go up and down the list with not that many. Einstein, Michelangelo, I think, was was a, was a genius in a sense, too. I really yeah. do. And there's other names that you could probably throw in the equation. But let's talk about the young Charles Darwin when I guess soon he was in his 20s. Yeah, he was 22 when he uh, departed and, and uh, 27, I think, when he returned. He grew up in a very privileged background, his father was a prominent. He grew up in in a, a town called Shropshire, which is in the West Midlands of, of England. Right. It's basically a, a small town in a rural, very overwhelmingly then and now very rural county. His mother was the daughter of uh, Josiah Wedgwood, the founder of the Wedgwood Pottery yep. Firm, which which was a prominent uh, company, and also it, it it sort of kicked off. Had, had a, a important role in kicking off the Industrial Revolution and, and really in the world. Darwin's mother died when he was eight. So he grew up in this, like a, a matriarchy composed of his three teenage, older teenage daughters, you know, his sisters, excuse me. And eventually he uh, was sent to a um, boarding school that was in his hometown. And along the way, he grew up the Severn River, England's longest river, ran close to his house. So he grew up around, sort of fascinated by the surrounding world. He, he was an avid collector of stamps, bird's eggs. But his father, by, by in his late adolescence, became concerned that he, he seemed to be without purpose. He became interested in shooting, going hunting with um, his cousins and a favorite uncle who lived 30 miles away. And his, his father was kind of in, concerned that he seemed to have no direction. So he, he finally was sent off to uh, Edinburgh, University of Edinburgh, to study medicine, as had his older brother. His father also had studied at Edinburgh. And he washed out of that after about a year. It turns out he was squeamish about blood. After he washed out of that, his father arranged for him his entry into Cambridge University to obtain a degree. It was, it was a, a, a degree, a bachelor's degree, the same one that aspirants to the Anglican priesthood choir. So the deal was that he was going to go to Cambridge, 
get that degree. And then his father was going to purchase or arrange for a, a rural parish for him, that which was a tradition of, of among naturalists of that age. A, a lot of the prominent, most prominent geologists of that age, and that's what Darwin was aspiring to be a geologist. They were um, Anglican priests. That was a, a, a very undemanding job with a good sinecure, you know, housing, etc., and it, which left lots of time to pursue interests in what they called natural history. If you don't mind, I want to jump ahead a little bit because I want to give people as much as we can in the time allotted a flavor of this book because he it was a journey then that in a sense changed the world. I'm going to list some places that he experienced along the way and let you amplify on that because once again, I think you understand this about Wonderlust and I did not notice about him because everybody says Darwin. We say Darwinian. That's that's our frame of reference. Everything yes. is Darwinian. Rio de Janeiro, Buenos Aires, Montevideo, Santiago, Lima, Sydney, and Cape Town. And everybody thinks about the Galapagos Islands, but correct me if I'm wrong, he spent more time on land than he did on sea. So his adventures on land really lend itself to a fascinating picture of what he experienced and what you replicate and write about in your book. Yeah, that was the, that was the thing. His this invitation that we can talk about how the invitation came arrived in, in his mailbox. But anyway, the invitation that he received to, to travel on this voyage, which is supposed to be a, a two year marine survey expedition, it was not a, it was only inadvertently scientific in right. its purposes. It was mostly commercial and economic. It was to basically provide Britain with updated charts of the world, principally the coasts and ports in South America. It was supposed to be for two years. And so anyway, this invitation arrived. And before leaving, Darwin met with the captain and he exacted a, a, an arrangement where he would be free to leave the ship at will to go on these with hiring guides. He would hire guides. But anyway, do these survey, uh, collecting ex- trip, collecting natural history specimens for, you know, they would be for weeks or in some cases months. And then he would meet the, the beagle at the next port, you know, arranged with the captain. You know, what you talked about, we've talked about some of his writings, and you have to put sometimes things into context in terms of time and date. Um, the question I'm going to ask you, why is the publication, The Origin of Species, delayed to 1859? What was the ge- – can I say geopolitics at the time that delayed this publication? Was he coming across as being a heretic? That may be a very strong word, but a lot of times when you're in the forefront of something and people don't understand what your, what your premise is, what you're preaching, in a sense, there's a dramatic backlash to that in the times that he was living in. So why was this publication delayed? What was going on in terms of that? He doesn't use the term heretic, but that was precisely the, it was part of the delay. I mean, he, uh, I think he, as he honed in on that theory, he, he knew that he was sort of moving into possibly perilous waters socially and for his family and everything. Right. At one point, actually, he copied the manuscript and gave it to a, or, or had it put away and, and with instructions for his wife to publish it and, and who should edit it and everything. I mean, not not Origin of Species, but a kind of shorter version of the theory. But he, yeah, he had that theory more or less. He knew what it was years before 1859 when he finally published it. What, what forced him to publish it was he learned that another, he had some competition, uh, Russell Wallace, a young man in, who was working in Malaysia, a naturalist, was sort of approaching the, the, those same issues with the same idea. By the way, uh, just to back, back to the reason that people 
wonder why it's called Voyage of the Beagle. That was a that was a title that was appended to it in 1902, yeah. long after Darwin, a couple of decades after Darwin's death. The original book that we know is Voyage of the Beagle was originally part of a three-volume set that the captain, Captain Fitzroy, oversaw, and in it quickly, Darwin's contribution quickly outsold the other two. There's a saying that a new story is the first rough draft of history, and you're an historian. Mm-hmm. Do you have an opinion of what I call revisionist history? Things be, seems to be turning upside down based on who was doing the reporting and who was writing. And we live in a times, quote unquote, of the big lie, which in a sense is the ultimate revisionist history. I know it's going to be played down the road right now. Yeah. Do you have a feeling about that as an historian? Well, let, let me approach it this way. What, what I try to do with my books is I have this sense of who the characters are. And at a certain point, as I get to know them, I find that they sort of have developed their own autonomy. I mean, they're, they're doing things or behaving in ways that I'm not ex- kind of surprised me. So I guess I'm sort of old-fashioned. I'm mostly interested in finding out what happened. I don't really don't think about, you know, biases or you know, the latest ideological fashion is. I don't know if that answers your question. No, whatever your answer is fine with me because yeah. the question is out there to be interpreted any way that you like, and yeah. I, I yeah. appreciate that response. I also want to mention something else about what you do. You have been a contributor to New York Times acclaimed series Disunion about the Civil War. And our previous guest is Kevin Baker, who's a great historical novelist, mm-hmm. and has covered that time frame, the draft rights yeah. and everything else. Yeah. So just tell us about your contribution to that um, acclaimed series, because the New York Times sometimes has really criticized the 1619 Project and everything else. So what, yeah. was, what was your role in that series about the Civil War? Well, I, I just wrote, uh, I did, I think I did four or five pieces. I did a Two or three books ago, I did a, a book on Frederick Douglass's the time he spent in, in Ireland and in England, too, which is kind of a formative experience for him. After he became famous in this country, his, his life was threatened, and he and uh, colleagues decided he needed to get out of the country for a while. So I did a piece on him. I did a piece on Walt Whitman for that project. I mean, Whitman is my probably my favorite writer. Oh, I did a piece that was ta- uh, based on another book I did on, on the Confederate raider Shenandoah, which was a, a Confederate raiding ship. And it was the only Confederate ship to circumnavigate the globe. So this is how I liked in each segment. And what I tried to do is I asked every guest, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? So here's your opportunity to respond. What did I miss in this conversation about you and your book, or what did I get wrong? Um, not a thing. <laughs> well, then I'll let you give us a look. Once again, a capsule. You know, I want to switch gears. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I use Twitter, try to use Twitter responsibly. Yeah. You're on Twitter. I've seen some of your Twitters. Are uh-huh. you concerned about that? The point of view that you have will hurt you as a writer. I know another writer who I love named Darren Strauss, who's a terrific writer. And he's been gone after for some of the tweets he's put out there, viciously gone after. Are you concerned about that kind of feedback and blowback? Because you seem to be very upfront about what you put out there. No. Early career, I was in newspapers. I have sort of studiously never expressed opinions about anything. I want to thank my guest, Tom Chafin, the book of Odyssey, Young Charles Darwin, The Beagle, and The Voyage That Changed the World. Tom, thank you so much for the conversation. I appreciate it.
Well, thank you, Larry. I appreciate your interest. After the break, singer-songwriter Nico Patton joins the conversation and also some music. We're looking forward to that. We'll be right back. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Nico Patton has been described as a folk riot by Ben Folds, said she has a big voice and a generous voice. And here's Nico Patton. That's Nico Patton. So my first question will be, 
what are you drawing upon, especially for that song? Because there's a lot of emotion, a lot of energy, and I guess in a sense, righteous or not, a fair amount of anger. So where is it coming from? So there's three uh, stories in this song. The first one is about a friend of mine who left an abusive relationship and what that moment was like for her when she um, decided to make a clean break and leave and get an order of protection and um, basically start a new life. Um, the second story is me, um, particularly drawn upon. Um, I had a, a, an experience at a conference with um, a man in some of the music circles that I travel in who uh, harasses all of the young women that I know. <laughs> and um, everybody kind of there's like a whisper campaign like, yeah, stay away from that one. And I um, brought it to the attention of the organization that was running the conference that I was at. And um, there was some there was some. Uh, What's the word that I'm looking for? There was some, um, I want to say re he was reprimanded for his actions, basically. Right. So um, that that is when I began to write this song as I was driving home from the conference. And I was feeling pretty good because I had spoken up for, you know, on behalf of myself and the other women who uh, had been bothered by this person. And um, I was like, ooh, I'm burning Rome to the ground. And then I was like, ooh, that's a song. <laughs> so that's where it came from. And then I was, so I was kind of working on the song. I had the first two verses. I had, you know, my friend in my mind who had um, had this abusive relationship when I was um, in college. And uh, so I had those two verses, but I, I kind of felt like I really needed something that was felt um, collective for the third verse. And I was thinking about, okay, like what you know, what, what can I look to in terms of either history or, uh, movements that are currently going on. And, um, what I stumbled upon was this, um, group of women, there are seven women called the mothers of the movement. And they are these women who, um, basically were the ones who started the black lives matter movement, right. yeah. um, because each of them had a child who was uh, killed at the hands of police officers. Um, and, uh, they're all black women. And, um, I was reading about them and watching some videos of them speaking. And that was where the third verse got there, got the inspiration. How many times have uh, you performed that song? How many times? Yes. How many times? Uh, I don't remember. Well, <laughs> probably, well, probably a lot, Larry. <laughs> all right. So where, where, where I'm going with, because I think about extrapolating for what I do with writers. I'd rather have an interview with a writer early on in the promotion of their book or whatever they've created, not mm. the last time, because I've been asked the same questions, same questions, same questions, and the energy levels will kind of fade out. Hmm. So every time that you perform this song, do you feel the same or you have to kind of ratchet up the indignation? Um, it's never fake. I'm not saying fake. I'm just saying drawing on that same emotion time after time after time. No, I, I mean, I always feel it. I always, I, I mean, I, certainly. So I've performed that song a lot. I think the first time I performed it live was at a, a songwriter round, um, in 2019. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't feel any less, um, the way I felt writing it th than I do what am I trying to say? I don't feel any less that way now than when I was writing it. <laughs> so as the times change, do you feel even more emotional based on what's going on in the world in your life? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, certainly as a woman who is a, a feminist and, um, you know, looks for positive change on behalf of uh, women, um, 
I, I mean, I think that certainly there have been victories won. I was certainly glad that our governor was ousted because of all of his harassment of women. So, you know, I mean, there are like great things that happen and then there are setbacks. You know, um, I was certainly seriously disappointed about the appointing of uh, Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. So I, I and I'm worried about what's going to happen with reproductive justice. So, I mean, it's always a back and forth, you know, when you're a person who's like looking for um, the advancements of rights of a group of people who've historically been oppressed. Let's go back to your earliest days and your earliest memories of music. We had a conversation before we started recording the podcast, so I kind of know the answer. You know, they call us in the business the pre-interview. We were just talking before the setup, so forget there was a pre-interview. <laughs> I always like to know where where are you coming from because you're a talented woman. You've got a lot of Ben Folds for one praised you, which is, I think, a pretty big deal, quite honestly. That was very exciting for okay. me. <laughs> All right. And this is exciting for me because I know next to nothing about the process sometimes of you as a creator. So let's go back to your origin story. Where did it start with you? Uh, well, my mom is a music teacher, and then she later became the boss of all the music and art teachers in our school district where I grew up. And um, she's a professional organist and piano teacher. So I, I started lessons when I was really small, maybe four years old. And my parents are both musicians, actually. My dad didn't do it as a profession, but um, he's a great guitarist, and my parents play in a kind of pickup um, Irish band around St. Patrick's Day. They do a lot of gigs. So um, definitely it's a it's a sort of family tradition for me. And I, I um, was serious about piano from from being a little kid. And then um, when I was maybe 11 or 12, that's when I started learning guitar, too. And of course, I, I was serious about singing. I went to college for singing um, and uh you know, songwriting was always a thing that I kind of did that was um, in private for me. And I didn't uh, I didn't start to publicly perform my own songs until after I graduated. I was kind of on the um, uh, professional classical musician uh, opera singer path until I graduated college. And uh, when I finished and had my vocal performance degree newly minted in my hand, that's when I decided I didn't want to do opera and started doing some open mics and uh, getting some of my own original songs out so there. So how was opera? help your voice. It's a different discipline, but it's an impressive discipline to listen to an opera singer and what they can do vocally. Yeah, I mean, it's a different vocal technique. Certainly, it's a different placement in terms of like, if you think about the human being as a, like an instrument, like the guitar, it resonates inside the body of the guitar. And, right. and um, you know, your voice, it's the same thing. So like, if I'm going to resonate my voice for opera, you know, like I'm going to use more in what they call the head voice. Okay. So that's like up in more the crevices of your skull. Whereas if I'm going to sing, you know, something where I'm maybe using a little bit more of a commercial contemporary style. I might use something that's a little more in my face up here. We're burning now, right? Like I'm going to I'm going to be more in my cheeks maybe, my sinuses, a little bit more my chest. So I I I've been watching The Voice for years. I think The Voice has jumped the shark with some of the panel the judges quite honestly. What do you mean by jump the shark? I don't know that expression. Well, because I think they've just mailing it in hmm. that they it's the same persona. Everybody's amazing, everybody is wonderful. They're not all amazing and wonderful. But where I'm going is they always say when they're working with some of the artists and different segments of the uh, various episodes as, as the voice goes through its season, some 
your head voice versus your chest voice. Yeah. Now, so I, is, I would say that, that they I would say that they use those terms pretty much inaccurately. Well, what does a, it mean? As a person with a vocal performance degree. <laughs> <laughs> so head voice means you resonate in your head. Okay. Right? I'm resonating primarily in my head. I would say the more accurate terms are head dominant and chest dominant because if I'm belting a high note as opposed to using my head voice, I'm not completely in my chest. My chest voice is when I'm speaking low. Like if I put my hand on my collarbone and I'm speaking to you now in my chest voice, the lower part of my register. If I put my hand here, I'm going to feel a rumble. I'm going to feel vibration, right, right? right? If I belt a high note, I don't feel any rumble in my chest voice. It's really more accurately, it's face voice when you're belting a high note. That sound belting like what I was doing on Burning Rome to the Ground. I'm burning bone on the ground. That's a belt sound, right? As opposed to operatic would be, I'm burning Rome to the ground. Right, a little different sound. A lot different. Um, it's it's really more about like where I'm placing my voice and what what larynx position I'm in. So larynx down is more of an operatic position. Larynx slightly higher up is more of like a contemporary position. So uh, you know, not to knock something that lots of people love, but I would say that in general, the people on the voice are not vocal coaches. They're not people who've studied singing. They're they're talking in ways about it that are sometimes inaccurate. <laughs> I, I actually, I mean, I've only ever seen little clips. I've never even watched a full episode no. of The Voice. <laughs> well, I, I don't disagree, but you're always looking for the person they're finally going to discover. And these sing, sure. singing competitions, the idol, they never, very, very few people. And the really good ones are never the finalists. That's, it's ironic. Some have yeah. gone on to great careers. Didn't didn't win. Didn't win. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to I hate to burst the bubble even a little bit more. But the people who win, the, the deals that they get aren't great. They tend to be kind of financially abusive. Like they do what these things they're called 360 deals, right, which in the right. music business is like a, a way of saying that the, the record company owns a lot more of you and what you do than um, in previous types of record deals. And so those artists, they end up they don't really you think they become all famous and they make all this money. They really don't make a lot of the money that the record company and the TV show makes off of them. Right. You know, well, it's like the old studio system in, in Hollywood. They they yeah. owned you. You were a contract player. You had to do eight movies for them and uh, yeah. before they would release you. So let's go back into another song that I heard on your album, your newest album called Pirate Queen. And I like this a lot. Because um, it speaks to me, and I know what, what you intended, but I, early in my days, and when I got out of college, I was a school teacher, yeah. working with very young kids in special eds. When I heard 27 Heartbeats, I said, man, I got to hear the song from the person who created it. All right. I'm just going to pull up my lyrics, because this one I actually don't get to perform live that much. And uh, I want to make sure that I sing all the lyrics correctly. <laughs> we, we won't know, so feel free. <laughs> 27 little heartbeats, 27 pairs of eyes, 27 little voices that never fail to surprise, 27 questions, 27 first tries, 27 stumble and falls, 27 little cries. They tumble into my classroom, all shiny hope and growth. They learn new words on how to be kind. Their little faces give me hope. And every day I swallow the thought, if we are next in this onslaught, how can 
strong? Will I be brave? Can I think fast enough to save my 27 little learners? How can I keep them alive? 27 when I grow up, 27 secret fears, 27 innocent dreams, 27 sets of listening ears. They listen to the words we say. If we are next in the sun's thought, how can I keep them alive? Can I be strong? Can I be brave? Can I think fast enough to save your 27 little babies? How can I keep them alive? Lock the door, pull the screen, shut the lights, be still, still, still. Davidson, this is the podcast Artful Periscope. That's another song from I Lover to Death, Nico Patton, whose new album called Pirate Queen. I'm a big fan of movies that make me almost come to tears. And I'm thinking of Mr. Holland's opus. Oh, I love that movie. Right. So, and the ending is, it's one of the great endings in Hollywood because if you don't break up, you have no heart, you have no empathy, you have nothing to forget <laughs> about. I don't even have words to describe that. So I'm thinking in terms of that movie and what you do, is there something that you want to create that's going to be your own version of an opus? Oh, me? Yes, Personally. you. Yeah. Oh, what a question. Well, I'm working on a musical at this moment. So, um, I... I have about half of it finished. It's Romeo and Juliet, the rock musical. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Um, it's a pandemic project. It started, I, I was doing this uh, reading group on Zoom of Shakespeare plays with a good friend of mine who's a professional Shakespearean actress. And we got to chatting and um, it was a project both of us were really interested in doing. So she's the Shakespeare expert and I'm the composer. And we've been working on this musical ever since. And so um, if certainly that's a, you know, that's an an opus goal for me. All right. So in terms of collaborations, I think I heard her on one of your songs. That's Christine Sweeney. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yep. Tell us about her and what did you guys do together? Because your voices together, once again, were exquisite. So, yeah. So it's actually a couple of songs that I have both Christine and Roy Kelly. Um, the two of them are just um, wonderful friends of mine, uh, beautiful musicians. Um, and so both of them sing on the song Mother and Father, as well as the song Bar on 63rd. And what I wanted to create was, um, you know, like a layer cake of gorgeous harmony. Is that my guitar that's doing I that little buzz thing? Is it me? Oh, I'm so sorry. We can turn it off. I don't need it anymore. 
Okay, perfect. Um, so I wanted to create a layer cake of like really beautiful, gorgeous three-part harmony. Yeah. And Christine has this beautiful uh, mezzo, like alto type voice with a lot of fat bottom notes. And um, Rory has a voice that's in many ways very similar to mine. It and has... Rory's been here, by the way. Yeah. So we, we know. We you know. know. We you know. know. <laughs> so her, hers and my voices blend beautifully. I think it must be because we're both uh, ethnically Irish. <laughs> must, it, we must have cousins from, from, from the past from the same county or something. Um, but, uh, you know, together, our three voices, I, I love the way that it um, that it sounds. And so I invited both of them to sing on those two songs with me. And I actually, because of my background, I actually write out the notes. Not everybody does this when you have um, guest singers in the studio, but I, I create sheet music and write out the notes to, to the parts that I want them to sing. And then I, you know, make them a little practice recording with my own voice. And then they come in and they're ready to... Nail it. So I listened to Bar on 63rd Street. Mm -hmm. um, we're not going to play it, but was it autobiographical? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, give us some insight with that. So that song I wrote, um, I had this really crappy bar that I was playing in. Rory actually used to play there too. I'm pretty sure they closed after COVID. Um, and they, uh, you know, it was like the kind of gig where you know, it was always like you were double scheduled with somebody or the manager didn't have enough cash to pay you or whatever. And so it was just like, you know, I was playing there because it was really close to where I lived in Forest Hills, but um, it was not a great gig. And uh, I, I ended up getting double booked there one night and she was decent. She paid me, but uh, I had to come home and I was I had been expecting to play. And I just I don't know, on the drive home, this is often how uh songs come to me is on drives home right. and um it just started pouring out so what i do is i just i put the little recorder on on my phone and i just started sort of singing it into my phone and it was it was at a moment in my life where i was feeling really sort of lost and you know what what the hell am i doing um and like you, you know I'm, I'm playing this crappy bar gig and it's definitely not the dream and i've been double booked and canceled and it's saturday night and i'm going home and like what what am i doing with my life and um it just sort of poured out. I mean, I, it, it, I don't always write song that songs this way, but it was, um, it was the type of song that, uh, I, I literally just wrote from start to finish without, without much interference. I just went home, sat down and wrote it down. So on my set list for this podcast, for one of your songs, can you do pay the piper? I most certainly can. Yeah, this one's going to be hotter. Didn't you know I was a sinner? 
Let me give you a scenario, if you don't mind, because okay. I don't sleep well. So a lot of times I'm up at three o'clock in the morning and I'm thinking about my next interview. And if a book stays with me at three o'clock in the morning, that's my gold standard. If I think about a song three o'clock in the morning, that's my gold standard. So for you, let's say it's three o'clock in the morning. What, what music do you hear? Do you hear your own or do you have some yeah. favorite music, Ben Folds, whatever? What would you hear if you're up at three o'clock in the morning? So that is actually another time when I uh, would write songs. Like if I wake up, for me, I, I'm, I'm an okay sleeper through the night, but if I'm disturbed about something, I'll wake up early. I'll wake up at like five. And that is often when I'll have like, a, I'll get up and I'll, you know, do be doing whatever I'm doing and I'll be like humming a melody and I'll go, ooh. I've not heard that before. I'll write that down. <laughs> Let me sing that into a recorder. So yeah, often it's it's um, my own. But um, to answer your question, what music really moves me? Um, I mean, yes, yeah, certainly I'm a huge uh, fan of Ben Folds. He's wonderful. I I would say I'm I'm a big fan of musicians who are musicians, musicians, meaning that they're music nerds. Um, some examples. Okay, some examples. Putting you in, in the spot. Influences on me. Okay, so Regina Spector, um, in terms of her classical piano background, that's right. something that I have in common right. with her. I love the Chicks. Um, it used to be the Dixie Chicks. Yeah, yeah. 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 They're, they're not. They're not the Dixie Chicks <laughs> anymore. They're the Chicks now. Love them in terms of their three-part harmony and their really killer songwriting um, and their sass. Um, I'm a big fan of the Dave Matthews Band, always have been. Uh, love their jazz and improv improvisational element that they bring to their pop songs. Um, I am uh, a big fan of Sarah Bareilles, who is a pop songwriter, but also, of course, a musical theater composer, as I am. Um I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but certainly uh, some of my local friends on Long Island are, is music that I uh, would, would have on repeat. Rory Kelly, Christine Sweeney, L.A. Creus, love Pete Mancini. Um, 
So yeah, I mean that's if you that's what's currently on my my Spotify at this moment. <laughs> uh, you said the magic word. The duck comes down. Groucho Marx is here in, in spirit in the studio. Spotify. A lot of controversy about them. What's your yeah. thoughts? Well, I mean, certainly I I don't agree with them keeping Joe Rogan. I think that I think that they should take his platform away. Um, you know, in terms of uh, me as a as an artist, I'm I'm not going to take my music off Spotify. I can I curse on this? Is there, is there a lot? So um, artists like Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, they all have what I call fuck off money. <laughs> um, I am not in that position. So, I mean, I still, I mean, not that I make that much money from Spotify in particular, but, um, you know, I'm not in a position to take my music off of any uh, platform in which people are consuming it. So, you know, while I I, I certainly disagree with their choice, I, I, I you know, I'm not in, in, a, in a position to, to boycott them at this moment in time. But yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that, you know, Joe Rogan should vet his guests and make sure that they're giving accurate scientific information. <laughs> we always end a segment with my thoughts about or my query about with every guest. What did I miss? What did I get wrong? So, Hi. Nico, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? The floor is yours. Okay. Well, I'll just say that my album that's out now, it's called Pirate Queen, and it's about women taking back the crown that's rightfully theirs. And um, it's uh, an album that I wrote in the wake of my grandmother's death. I lived with my grandmother for the last five years of her life. She lived to be almost 99. And um, she and I and then my husband kind of took care of each other. We were this little family unit. And um, it's based on not only my experiences with her, but also some reading about pirate queens from history the song pirate queen is a song about um my friends and my fans who have supported me so much in my little independent singer songwriter career um so it's a it's a love song for uh for my quirky friends and a promise to remain my unusual weird quirky self so that they can be unusual and weird and quirky too um yeah and if anybody wants to um check out my stuff they can visit me at n-i-c-o-p-a-d-d-e-n.com they can find me on all of the places where you would find music um the best way to support an independent artist of course is to buy their music um and you can do that directly from my website you can also do it on itunes and places like that um you can even order a cd if you own a cd <laughs> player my goodness. But yeah, the, the, the best way to um, to help support uh, the creation of my independent music is to um, is to purchase it so people can do that. And um, of course, I welcome interaction if people want to interact on my social media. I'm very uh, active on Instagram and TikTok and even Facebook. Thank you for this segue, because the same thing I say you said about your music. I want people to support this podcast. We think we have a good product here. And the word of mouth is very, very important. So if we had one and we had one and we had one, certainly want to hear more stories coming from Tom Chafin and Nico Patton. Um, I'm going to ask you to play out. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. Thanks, Larry.
Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Cristofaro, Sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her kitchen chair,